sickness. But in fairness to David Green, if any of his employees can get tested for COVID-19, which nobody in the entire country can, but if one of them can and they test positive, they can stay home without pay. <laughs> so I think that's very generous of him. And I think this is not a wider societal problem. Sean, it sounds like you might be um, doing what Idris Elba described as test shaming. Uh, so shaming great. the rich for being able to get tests without symptoms. That was so great. Idris Elba got tested and then his wife, who was in direct contact with him as the entire time, also oh, got yeah. tested and tested positive. Like, you didn't need a test. Your husband <laughs> tested positive and you were touching him. You are also positive. What if he didn't test positive and then that like fueled stories that they're like separating or something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in like, if you go to the New York uh, state website, you know, the where New York right now is so bad that I have friends from old friends from Europe who are messaging me out of the blue, like, Hey, uh, are things okay right now? How are things in Brooklyn? Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And it's it, even with the situation that bad, if you go to the New York State website, it'll say, um, yeah, you don't, the uh, testing supplies are really low. So, uh, like, unless you're on the verge of death, uh, please, please uh, try to spare the tests and, and don't, don't get tested. It's probably <laughs> a cold. Yeah. We can't even, dis we can't even discover who has it. Yeah. Let alone attempt to deal with the problem. Just on the Idris Elba thing, I want to say one of the few good things to come from this pandemic has been a real renaissance in QAnon Twitter posting, <laughs> because they went through kind of a dark age when Trump didn't arrest all the pedophiles, but now they are convinced that every celebrity who tests positive is actually under arrest <laughs> and about to be subject to a military tribunal, and if you want to just have a good time, just go into Tom Hanks's Twitter replies <laughs> and you will find some incredible dots being connected about adrenochrome. Well, if, if if you're listening on your phone, I suggest you go into Google image search, uh, pull up a picture of the coronavirus and look at its circular shape with, um, uh, you know, a protruding line. Maybe there are many protruding lines, but one of them I'm sure is extra long. It's... um. It's a very Q-shaped virus. Well, when you are the black sheep of the family, you can't satisfy yourself with just being the Hobby Lobby CEO who makes money from profiting off pain. You have to be somebody that Mark Rutland, the former president of Oral Roberts University, puts it as David Green aspires to personal cosmic impact. This is him talking now. I want to know that I have affected people for eternity, he said. I believe I am. I believe once someone knows Christ as a personal savior, I've affected eternity. I matter 10 billion years from now. <laughs> That's some Scientology shit. Now, now get to work for $9 an hour in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> You're complaining about going to work in a pandemic when we're talking on a 10 billion year time frame here? <laughs> See, that's Oral Roberts is the ultra conservative university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's Those right. People don't even believe the Earth is four billion years old. <laughs> what? Yeah, they believe it's ten thousand years old. If Bible literalists will like, they'll oh, go. I thought you said they only believe it's four billion years old. It is four billion years old, I think. 
I know. I, I just thought you were making. Oh, it. oh okay. <laughs> you know these assholes are trying trolling me. <clears throat> I just want to underline something Yogi just said to to back up for a second because we should just pause on it very briefly. Is he was working at this other store for three years when he founds the thing, and then 13. he ins- for thirteen years. But he was working there for 13 years, but he was doing both for 13 years or just for three years? No, for 13 years, he was working at TGNY, but then for three of them, he was doing the Hobby Lobby upstart out of his house at the same time. Right. And that's what I wanted to highlight was for three years, he essentially enslaved his family in order to do his side hustle. Right. Where, like we said, his children and his wife were all enlisted into his side hustle. Which, uh, oh, you mean he? You mean he created jobs? <laughs> <laughs> but that he is hard. What David Green does, he takes people that are going to work for free for him and exploits it to the max. And just to uh, talk about some of the you know quote unquote charity work that they do, uh, Hobby Lobby funds charities like One Hope Need Him, Every Home for Christ, Every Tribe, Every Nation, and Whitecliff Translators, as well as. Oral Roberts University, the college that Ian just mentioned a moment ago. There's a uh, thread of right-wing conservative colleges, mostly Christian in this nation, that are being funded by people like David Green, among other Christian evangelical billionaires. And um, can I just say, you know, Steve was mentioning earlier about how this is kind of like a church, but maybe not with all the tax advantages. And it's true, it doesn't quite have all the same tax advantages. But when Yogi talks about their charitable deductions, something we'll talk about in a, in a little bit here is that most of Hobby Lobby's assets are held in a charitable trust, mm-hmm. which makes these ostensible charitable donations in many cases, you know, to uh, radical right wing causes or <laughs> fake charitable <laughs> donations. And then in turn, yeah. they use this to get tax exemptions, tax deductions. So all of this bullshit charity is just a tax write off. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why I think the church metaphor works pretty well, at least from an accounting standpoint. (laughs) There are uh, two things I want to mention about how Hobby Lobby operates. One thing that they do, and it goes in line with how they were trying to import uh, antiquities at a lower cost. But basically, Hobby Lobby will post like a pillow for $40, but it's on sale for $20. So now it's only a $20 pillow. Even though $20 is actually how much it costs. This 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 bullshit that it costs $40. No, that that's never been true. The MSRP is supposed to be $20, but they mark them up to make you think you're getting a great deal on something that's mm. a piece of shit. And in 1997, David Green uh had the Lord speak to him after he noticed there were no ads that said Merry Christmas. You guys, we all know about how obsessed the right is in this country about saying Merry Christmas. David Green reports, we run our holiday ads in papers in every city where we do business. We get hundreds of responses, and the majority of them are positive. Basically, he realized that during uh, Christmas and Easter, people were saying, like, uh, you know, Happy holidays and all that shit, but they weren't using Christ in their in their advertisements. So he was like, "Fuck that noise! We're gonna do that shit." And you also have to think about when do most people, whether they're uh, Christian or not, in this country at least, if not around the world, spend the most on wrapping paper and shit that you can get from a place like Hobby Hobby Lobby. These these high Christian holidays. Um, 
two other smaller stories I'll mention. I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'll go back. In 2013, a Jewish blogger inquired about the lack of Hanukkah-themed merchandise at a New Jersey Hobby Lobby. And this person was told by a salesman, we don't cater to you people. <laughs> and because of this uh, anti-Semitic response... He was told, we sell the Passion of the Christ. You can buy it on DVD. <laughs> that's, that's Jewish merchandise. Uh, basically, they were like, oh, for the first 20 years of the company's existence, David and Barbara Green personally selected the Christmas items that were sold in stores. Amid public accusations of anti-Semitism and discrimination, the family was forced to apologize, citing their donations to Israel's Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, for example, as proof that the company respected Judaism. So they literally bought their way out of we don't hate Jews. Another story in Trustville, and it was a guy walked in and said, like, hey, I'm going to return these things. And the employees of the stores were like, uh, okay, we're going to have to talk to a manager about this. And called the cops and were like, this guy stole from us and is trying to sell stolen merchandise. And he's like, I have a receipt. How could I stole this shit? And you can hear in a video at the uh, uh, video of this incident where the guy is breaking down like, I'm not a criminal. I wouldn't do this shit. How dare you accuse me of this stuff? So Hobby Lobby, as uh, Christian right as it is, also operates in a way that says, fuck Jewish people, fuck black people. And although they may claim like, we're just a nice Christian company, we're not trying to do any harm. No. They are trying to impose the right-wing movement on all Americans, regardless of your religious affiliation. Yeah, well, they're mostly based in, like, red states. Well, I guess they're in 46 states, but I would imagine most of their sales are in red states. Um, right? I'll tell you this. I don't know exactly how much of their uh, wealth comes exactly from red states versus metropolitan areas. But I will say that one of Hobby Lobby's practices is that they don't use UPC. They don't use barcodes. And David Green says that, well, we don't use barcodes because it makes it so the employees working at Hobby Lobby are more accustomed to the items we have and better at knowing where things are in the store. But another theory says that in evangelical literature, it says that barcodes are the sign of the devil. Like, <laughs> you see a barcode, that's 666. And so the theory is that they don't use barcodes because of that. But I will argue that the reason they don't use barcodes is if you did, you have a computerized system that shows you exactly how much inventory you have, how much it costs, and how much money is coming in and out. But I think they're cooking the books and saying shit costs more than it does when it doesn't and then making it so that they're putting expenses in there because it is similar to what they would end up doing with some antiquities later on. It, okay, if, they don't, if they don't use barcodes, then how do they do it? It's all done by hand. So they have warehouses all around the country and they like will be like, okay, we need three more you know, fucking styrofoam roosters at this store. They just... Uh it's all done like manually, like over the phone. It's all done over the phone. Emails, everything. And, and right. the, these warehouses that I'm describing here, the motherfuckers are overworked just as they are in Amazon. Because I'm reading from a, uh, um, a website talking about former employees, and uh, one of them here is, says, uh, good pay, awful store management, rude customers. Uh, but like... <laughs> I worked at store 388 in Fort Worth, Texas, and it was the most toxic work environment I've ever experienced. The store manager was unprofessional. She allowed harassment and inappropriate behavior to occur and even instigated harassment herself. The company doesn't give raises. The last time they gave employee a raise was two years ago. So 
one of the reasons why you don't see more bad press about Hobby Lobby is that when an employee gets a job there, they sign a uh, uh, not an NDA, but they signed a disclosure agreement to make it so that they won't sue their employer, even if something terrible happens. So there's a lot of out-of-case lawsuits that are settled so that they won't be in the public court system. Oh, it's like an arbitration system. Yeah, That's what it is. Yeah, arbitration. arbitration. Yeah. yeah. And um, what are QR codes the mark of? Um, I don't know. Uh, obsolete technology the moment <laughs> it was existed. <laughs> Okay, wait, wait. Barcodes are the mark of the devil. So I, I behold a pale horse whose rider was just in time delivery systems. <laughs> <laughs> a little supply supply chain management humor for you. And the star fell from the heavens and made the waters bitter so that all who drank them were bitter. And that star was a QR code. (laughs) (laughs) So moving along. Sorry. So now one thing I'd like to touch upon is the Museum of the Bible, a museum that has been founded by David Green and Family and Associates. And I believe Andy Palmer has more to say about this. Yeah, yeah. So it it was, I think, technically founded by Steve Green. It was his uh, little hobby horse. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's uh, it's a museum that opened in November of 2017, though the nonprofit was originally filed in 2010. And uh, according to the filing, the uh, mission of this museum was to inspire confidence in the absolute authority and reliability of the Bible. And uh, I'll get uh, in a second. I'll get to how reliable the actual Bibles in this museum are. Um, <laughs> but it it cost uh, 500 million to build it. Uh, most I don't know if it was most of which was from the Green family, but they were definitely the driving force and gave a lot of that money, mm-hmm. uh, or provided a lot of that money. And um, it so the museum is in Washington D.C. It's a couple blocks off of the mall, uh, so it's it's meant to look like part of the Smithsonian in a way. I mean, they don't they don't claim to be part of the Smithsonian, but uh, the mall in Washington D.C. is where the Smithsonian is, and they're just off the trail there and so they're kind of trying to get into um that and they uh so they built um let's see so the building that it's based in it uh they purchased it in 2012 and it's a refurbished uh building from 1923 the terminal refrigerating and warehousing co building uh, and what they did is they added a glass atrium and two floors to the top of the original structure, uh, making it seven floors total. So uh, in this Museum of the Bible, the first two floors cover biblical history. And then the third floor is devoted to immersive rooms um, with, uh, according to the Washington Post, a, a stronger admixture of entertainment. And this includes a recreation of a New Testament era village with fake olive trees and mikvah, which mm-hmm. is a ceremonial bath. And then they also have a uh, restaurant there that serves foods from the Bible. <laughs> and uh, included in this collection are, uh, wouldn't you know it, several different Bibles on display. Uh, this includes uh, the world's largest Bible. Uh, also, oh, sorry, Sean's dying in the background here. Yeah, Sean, what's going on with your fucking uh, face, dog? <laughs> 
Yeah, you you got it. You you got you got the Rona, dude. He has it. Come on, man. Don't be set. Sp- I mean, I'm I'm not judging. I've had a sore throat all week. Don't be I'm spreading the Rona sure. on my equipment, dog. Maybe that <laughs> alone. You're never gonna be able to take this back. Come on, bro. I want that <laughs> shit back, man. <laughs> Do you guys feel any pressure that any one of these could be our final episode? <laughs> I mean, it's, I keep uh, I keep going. More of the opposite. It's free. <laughs> I'll be done. Um, so, uh, okay, Sean's imminent death aside, um, and me freaking out Stephen with my sore throat aside, who is sharing a couch with me right now. Right. We saw on Skype, Steve took an extra step away from Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's subtly. Um, so, uh, again, on display, they have Elvis Presley's personal Bible, the world's largest Bible, and then... Um, they have a microfilm Bible that they claimed was taken to the moon on Apollo 14. Now, it's not their first microfilm Bible. Um, they actually had another one that they quietly replaced um, <laughs> because it, they found out it likely was uh, falsely claimed to have gone to the moon. The Bi- the original moon Bible they had uh, had a serial number, which was only three digits, uh, whereas all the Bibles that went to the moon had five digit serial numbers <laughs> and they had even purchased that original Bible for $56,000, which what? is more money than I've ever made in a year. Uh, and so they, uh, let's see. Another one is um, another Bible they have is one of the uh, earliest known fragments of the new Testament. And they got that from the Egyptian exploration society. And they did not get that with the permission of the Egyptian Exploration Society. <laughs> uh, what happened is that uh, this Oxford scholar named uh, Dirk Abink, um, who incidentally is a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, uh, he was accused in 2019 uh, of selling in 2013 uh, papyrus from this, which belonged to the Egyptian Exploration Society. And he said it was his own property when he sold it. Uh, wow. And then uh, another thing they have. Well, in fairness, he's not the uh, first uh, British person to claim Egyptian artifacts as his own personal property. <laughs> That's true. And, and in fact, uh, it looks like these artifacts, uh, the ones in possession of the Ele- Egyptian Exploration Society, might have been uh, looted by the British Empire. Um, and then. Uh, Finally, in their uh, formerly in their Bible collection were 16 fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were all revealed to be forgeries. Nice. Okay, yeah. So I'll I'll get back to the um, these Dead Sea Scrolls. But Yogi, you were you were gonna say? Yeah. So from that book, uh, the Bible Nation, the the United States of Hobby Lobby, it talks about these two gentlemen, Donald Jonathan Shipman and Scott C- Carroll. The way they were able to convince the Green family is in 2000, uh, Carol received an out-of-the-blue call from Shipman saying that, hey, let's do this Bible Museum project in Dallas. And they needed to get a donor with deep pockets, and so they looked at the Green family. 
the person that they talked with was Mart Green, the brother of the president of Hobby Lobby. And he was deeply invested in telling the story of five Christian missionaries who were killed while attempting to bring the gospel to the Hurani natives of Ecuador and Shipman was helping with fundraising. The film, which released in 2005 as End of Spear, turned out to be a public relations disaster for the Greens when it became known that one of the lead actors, Chad Allen, was gay. (laughs) Evangelicals questioned the film's Christian bona fides and Mark Green gave an interview in which he stated that he would never have knowingly hired 